Hey, this is Jack Mangan from Jack Mangan's Deadpan, and I am an outcast. Roto. Podcasting with Bigfoot and StrangerThings.tv's Earl Newton. Comedy. It's what we do. Enjoy. We know the sound quality is terrible. Rich borrowed a personal digital recorder from a friend and had no clue how to use it. At least he was able to find the on button. It only took him 14 tries. Rich starts off this interview from 2003 with Richard Hatch already in progress. You wonder why? Because even though Rich asked him to wait a moment while he turned everything on, Mr. Hatch was so excited to talk about his baby project that he wouldn't wait. But you still hear the meat of the new universe he's created. You will hear a much younger, less experienced Rich interview one of the first stars he's encountered at his very first con. Aw, isn't it cute? By the way, you may notice a few similarities between The Great War of Magellan and one of Mr. Hatch's other television shows. And by other television show, I of course mean Streets of San Francisco. They're all basically trying to survive not only against each other, because humanity is basically warring amongst itself in an attempt to survive in this apocalyptic universe. So therefore, everybody is basically out to one-up each other. Uh, these trader clans are warring against each other. And then there are outpockets of society that are still trying to rebuild and survive. So, but this species called the Kaaba is a parasitical species that lives on blood and, and energy. And it feeds upon humans like a parasite would feed upon a human, like we feed upon animals. Literally, we are food to them. And uh, they're a evolutionary species that, in some cases, uh, some might consider almost a further evolution of humankind that they're actually on higher up on the food chain. Uh, weird when human beings think of themselves as the top of the food chain, and all of a sudden they realize that they're not, that they're actually food for another form of life. And uh, but they they slowly discover that this species is actually a, an outshoot, an evolutionary. Um, a progression of a, a genetic uh, microorganism that they genetically engineered millions of years ago to uh, to repair genetic damage done by the Great Wars, the radiation, and that this genetic mutation microorganism literally continues to live within the bloodstream of human beings, and as human beings move out into the universe, it encounters uh, different kinds of um, environments where it mutates and it begins to act like a parasite that literally begins to take over human beings and in many cases uh, changes the physiology in other cases it doesn't it actually genetically interacts with different species of human beings and based on whatever culture whatever planet whatever area they're from it will change them in a different way some literally change totally so that they don't even look human others look human but are basically chopped kava, symbiotic with kava. That means that they that they're they're no longer human, but they look human. Others are half and half. Still partly human, but but no longer human. Uh, think of a vampire. Uh, so in a sense these these many mutations 
aberrations of the Kaaba make it kind of interesting, but it also makes it difficult for human beings to know when they're encountering a Kaaba and when they're not. But the the quintessential Kaaba, in, in essence, has begun to evolve into its own genetic, own species. And it is moving through the galaxy like a cancer, destroying everything before it. Think of ID4. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, some of the uh, CG ship scenes that you had where uh, yeah. the, the Kaaba ships were swarming. Yeah. Like a. a, a like locusts. Like, like locusts. And yeah. one of the amazing things with some of those ship scenes were the, the good guys. Yeah. Um, some of the tribal ships were the the actual um, the physics of the yeah. ships where they're using thrusters to spin yeah. around and shoot somebody behind them and yeah. push another button and it'll, it'll ship the ship around and fly into some of the the most amazing ship uh, scenes that I've seen. Very intense flying, buzzing through ships, through ships, as well as on ships. I've worked for a long time to get CGI guys to think out of the box because I told them, I said, this series takes place not only in deep space, but it takes place above planets, over planets, and therefore these ships have to be designed for both in-atmosphere flying and also out-of-atmosphere flying. But regardless of where they fly, they, the thrusters on these ships and the technology on these ships, which, by the way, ranges from primitive to sophisticated. Because it's apocalyptic, some, some, some of these trader clans have hold of ships with higher levels of technology. Others are very primitive technology. But they all customize their ships in order to make them as good as they possibly can because their survival depends upon it. So, again, this is not a shiny universe with shiny, sleek ships. This is a very rough-hued, you know, down-on-the-dirt, you know, kind of series. Much more human, much more flawed. Um, and in a sense, it's very difficult sometimes to tell the good guys from the bad guys. But there is a heroic journey amongst all these people in attempt because the, the, somehow the, the spirit of humanity lives within even the worst and is trying to get out. In, in a sense, it's, it's, it's the only way society is ever going to survive is that somehow the best in us finds a way through the worst in us. And, and, and that's the hero journey anyway. Uh, but these, these ships, designing these ships, I thought, you know, in space, if you were going to dogfight in space, the same way you're dogfighting over a planet. If you watch the way ships do it today, basically they have to be able to move and torque and, and, and be able to, they're pulling a lot of G's in, on the ground, but we have to move ships in very radical ways and, and in order to basically outfox your, your adversary who's chasing you or you're chasing. Therefore, not only do you have to be able to stalk them, but if they're stalking you, how do you avoid getting hit? So you would have to be, a good flyer has to really be able to maneuver a ship in very radical ways. And I thought, whenever I watch space battles, ships move at the same speed. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a halfback trying to go through a line on a football field, the way that you avoid your tacklers is that you shift speed. You go from slow to extremely fast, cutting left, cutting right, slowing up a little bit, speeding up. You're constantly altering your speed, your trajectory, you know, what you're doing, your angle. And I said, if you are a ship, you'd be doing the same thing. You'd be altering speed. I said, How, when do you see dramatic shifts of speed? You very rarely see it. Ships are always moving at one line of speed in one way. And so I thought, number one, I want to get dramatic shifts of speed, which you see in here. Number two, I said, if ships are going to have to move in every way conceivable in order to avoid getting hit, 
to outfox their adversary. How would they do that? And I thought, well, if you had thrusters in the back, yeah, they can be movable thrusters that allow you to do different kinds of things, but you're still not going to be able to get the movement that you get on the ground where you have wind shear and you have resistance that allows you to use that resistance in order to torque and twin, you know, twist and twirl your ship. So how would you do that in space? Well, we did that by having the same way they do with a, uh, a spacecraft when it's trying to dock against the space station. It has little baby thrusters that basically help to position the ship, not just your back thrusters. They've got thrusters along the sides, underneath, that allow you to reposition the ship in any direction you want. So I said, these fighters wind up with multiple thrusters all over the wings, back everywhere, so that just by I move the, the, the stick in any direction. If I want to torque it, do anything I want to do, I have a computer that synchronizes everything, synchronizes all the multiple thrusters and allows me to get just the right amount of thrust. So multiple thrusters that allow me to torque, twin, twirl, and ship in any way I want. So when I thought, again, the freedom in space is ships can move in any way because they're not limited by gravity or air resistance. So with the thrusters, I can, man I can give myself that kind of uh, extraordinary movement, but you still got to do it in some way that looks plausible. Otherwise, if it looks implausible, even if it could work on a physics level, it doesn't work either for the visual eye. So finding a way to do that has spent almost two years getting that done. So I wanted to make the ship battles more exciting, and then I, again, these pilots, uh, maybe like in Star Wars, these pilots have, just like anything you would have to work on in order to survive, you become quite good at it. Well, because these pilots are have to survive and because their lives depend upon it, they have become the most extraordinary pilots in the universe. And in a sense, they almost inbreed that they only take on rare people who have these special innate skills to work with because a normal pilot would not survive for five, for two hours as a pilot. So they, they, they look for a potential person who's got these innate reflexes, thinking abilities, and this almost intuition that goes beyond almost like usually very talented people. They have a really high developed sense of intuition. They sense things almost before it happens, and they intuit it. And these pilots have to be three steps ahead of the game, almost like a good chess player. So again, through thousands of years of passing along these skills and developing these abilities, these pilots have become quite extraordinary. But the best of them, and there's only a very few that live beyond two decades of life, are called the Mazarai. And the Mazarai are almost just like anything. If you entered an order and worked on a particular facet of the human being, you would become expert at that particular facet. Well, these pilots, because they've survived long enough, they have developed these skills to an almost amazing level. And uh, they're almost, like I say, they're almost considered a slight, not quite human. And, they, they, and they've called them the Mazarai, you know. Almost supernatural. Yeah, they, they've just moved to a, to a level of, of ability that, that is almost, it's almost... They, they, they're able to use the, maybe their mind 3% or 5%, whereas most people use 2%. Right. And so they, they, they've begun to develop those abilities. And uh, there's a few of them out there. And uh, Killian, this character, obviously, 
Uh, and basically, these Mazarai are, in a sense, called light walkers. They're, they're basically a, a further evolution of humankind, and they begin to tap in to a the genetic DNA databank where, where there are extraordinary abilities that are, that are locked into our DNA that most people don't have access to. But through their survival and through their kind of working their way through the ranks and managing to stay alive long enough to develop these abilities, they tap into this extraordinary part that lies within every individual. Everybody has this there. It's just that most people never go to those lengths where they ever get to it. And these 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 pilots have found that way there, and there's very few of them, but they're called the Nazarai, and, and Achillean is one of them. And he, again, his journey through this universe will reveal not only the ancient heritage of who human beings are, how they evolve, but it, it also will tap into the future of where humanity might go in the next million years. In a sense, they are the future today, you know? Now, um, I, we also showed some person-to-person combat, and yeah. uh, there were blasters and such, but there was also a particular weapon that's used, and I'd like you to say uh, why you chose that weapon and uh, any production yeah. troubles that may come with that. Well, it, it's in this apocalyptic universe where millions and millions of people have died, and where technology is, as you know, we're almost there ourselves in this world, where you can kill somebody from 10 miles away and not see them. Well, obviously in this universe, they have that kind of technology and beyond. So the trader clans, over thousands of years, have developed certain honor codes. Honor codes are that it's very easy to kill somebody from 50 miles away, 100 miles away, 500 miles away. But it, it is, in order to kill an adversary, if there's an adversary that you have a feud with, and they have these blood feuds, well, to kill an adversary from that far away is not honorable. To kill an adversary who has, who has uh, in a sense, insulted you very much like back in the 16th century, the 15th century, and they would, they would go out and have a duel. Well, they could have killed each other with a pistol, even back then, but they chose to duel. So in a sense, these traitors will duel. But what they will do is that they have to use, they can use um, weapons that they can fire from a distance, but they, they each develop their own kinds of weapons, but they will set down on a planet, two people going against each other. And basically will set down in a place, just to give you an example, like a, a desert planet with no food, no water and they will stalk each other. And they will start from a distance. And from the distance, they will try to take each other out with not weapons of mass destruction, but whether it's laser technology or a pneumo technology, which is like a pistol that we have now, or any or a, a bow and arrow type of thing, a bola, whatever kind of weapons they evolve, they can use from a distance. And then they close the circle. From a distance, they slowly concentric circles move into closer, closer things using different weapons as they get in closer. And ultimately, the one-on-one -on -one combat is some form or version of a sword. It's a symbolic weapon, but it's also, they thought, is to kill somebody that you can see eye to eye is considered an honorable way to die, an honorable way to win. And so therefore, they will pit each other against each other. Sometimes they'll just drop in and work with some form of sword weapon. Uh, that they will just customize and design themselves. 
Um, other times they will use, there's other kinds of weapons that, that I'm actually having some designers come up with. But again, the nice thing is is that they all, it, they consider that to be able to stalk one another and go one-on-one -on -one with somebody, first of all, that it's a test of their skill. It's a test of their endurance. And they always do it in such a way that it's an epic test. It's not just fight, kill. They put themselves in the most extreme condition where they basically have to survive and stalk their adversary and either kill their adversary. But in many cases, sometimes enemies become friends. Sometimes enemies will respect each other's abilities so much that they end up not killing one another. And so, uh, again, uh, these one-on-one -on -one, uh, feuds and, and, and battles that they will have will be extraordinary. I mean, they will, sometimes the whole show will evolve around that. Now, I've heard uh, things like this referenced as, if you, if you make your enemy look weak and you kill him, what have you earned? Yeah. Nothing. All you did was beat a weak enemy. But if you make your adversary look strong and you beat them, that ev elevates the win and yourself so much more. Also, also, to kick out somebody who's not a worthy adversary or to kill somebody from the back, it's so easy. There's no pride in that because there's no skill in that. So they really consider skill and endurance and also there's something about testing themselves against the most extreme situations, conditions, and adversaries. It's not even considered an honor to fight an adversary that's unworthy of you. So uh, if, a, if an adversary is, is unworthy of you, you don't even challenge them. It, it's beneath you, you see. You would, you would take out an adversary like that, maybe from a distance, because it's, it's not considered to be, to be a, uh, a, a skill. But for them to, to fight in this way, and, and even the ship battles that they will do, uh, they have designed their ships so that they choose to battle each other, especially one-on-one. -on -one. Not in mass condition, one-on-one. -on -one. They fight almost like the old dog fights in World War I. Because they, they, the dogfights, there is a higher level of skillful flying as opposed to sending off a, a laser or a rocket from, from 10 miles away. So again, even in their duels, in their ships, they're going up against different technologies. And the interesting thing about this is, because it's post-apocalyptic, technology ranges from primitive to sophisticated, some ships are very basic. And yet they will win against a far more sophisticated ship because of the skill of the pilot. You see? So the, and, and also the same thing goes for weapons. Sometimes laser technology, sometimes even the magma, plasma, whatever the technology, somebody with just a basic um, bola or a basic some kind of bow and arrow will take out somebody with a laser weapon. The point of it is, is the cool thing is, is that it's based on a deeper, more profound skill. And you realize that weapons are only part of the equation. But ultimately, it's the man, the woman. And... Uh, these Mazari, which are those who are born different, light walkers, again, they come from all walks of life, they're all ages. Some are 12 years old, some are 90, some are 300 years old. They're all ages, and they, but they all share a common thing. They've all been, in a sense, pushed out of their society because they were born different and therefore misunderstood, and many of them have suffered greatly and, and have gone down dark paths. In fact, the one thing that would be a common common uh, history of the Mazarai is that they've all had to walk the dark path. But very much like the shaman who basically has to survive a snake bite to develop an immunity to it, these Mazarai find that in their, their walk to the dark side, 
they're developing an immunity to it so that they can ultimately return to no longer seduced by the dark side. But in order to, to develop an immunity to the dark side, they have to walk that path. And that's what their earlier part of their life is. But most don't survive. They die. So that those who do survive are the ones who develop the immunity and the ability to no longer be seduced by the dark side. All right. Now, um, you also mentioned that uh, you're looking for people to uh, help participate in this, whether through uh, promotion or if uh, they have special talents or anything like that. Would you like to talk about that? Make a, yeah. a full-out cast call or a, just a call to arms? Well, I'm, uh, the thing I'm going to do with this area is probably unlike any studio system because studio systems, bureaucracies, corporate America, uh, some, some function uh, quite well, but for me, I think that most large organizations tend to suppress creativity, um, and I'm looking for people who think out of the box. I'm looking to uh, for people who bring something more to the equation. I'm looking whether it's artists, CGI guys, actors, writers, producers. I'm looking for people who really not only challenge the mind, but challenge the heart, challenge the soul, challenge the spirit. Uh, I'm looking for people who basically um, are, are they, they, they commit and are willing to walk the extra mile because I hate to say it, many people are talkers, very few people are doers. And the point is, I'm looking for people who really are willing to get not only get it, who get excited about an idea, but once they do, they jump in and commit and are willing to go the distance. And finding people like that, you can produce extraordinary things. And I want to do a television series almost a theatrical style television um, movie series for television so that it has the expansiveness of a movie it has as as much as any movie could ever have and yet it's a continuing story where we get more in depth in the characters and the history and the mythology uh, where we can explore extraordinary characters and, and extraordinary situations that help us to explore the the the, the the, the mind, the heart, the spirit of who we really are as human beings because great drama creates great challenges that bring out the best and the worst in people, which is what creates drama. Well, I want to do, take that one further. I want to not only have incredible character stories, but the action needs to emanate very, very organically out of the character and plot and story. It has to be very intricately woven, and I think that it's possible to do that where the, the special effects and the action sequences aren't just, you know, fluff and not just uh, fireworks, but they actually are a continuation of the story, very much like a song and a musical. It should be a continuation of the narrative. It shouldn't just be, okay, now it's time for a song again, <laughs> you know. So I, I'm looking to do some extraordinary things, and I need really, really good writers to work with who can... Um, help to develop profound characters because it's like Lord of the Rings. If you don't love the characters, you don't care what happens to them. And so I want to take sci-fi for me to the next level because I, I want to, I love Star Trek, but I want to move out of such a kind of, um, where everything's, happy sci-fi. Well, everything's sleek and everything's shiny, everything's new. Uh, I, I wanted to create a place where we today can relate to it and yet it's different enough that it allows us to, to look at it objectively so that we can maybe uh, explore ideas and concepts that might be too threatening or too close to home. 
Uh, you know, sci-fi allows us to look into the future. It explores, helps us to explore alternate realities, uh, theoretical probabilities. And yet, like Battlestar, which was not too futuristic, we could relate to it. You know what I mean? It wasn't something that was so far away from us, personally. Battlestar, the universe, the ships, the concepts, it was... It was something that was almost familiar to us, you know, which was it was. And I think in this universe, what's so cool about it is that anything and anything can happen. And and you because you have extraordinary characters here uh, that we can all relate to, whether you're 12 years old or whether you're 90 years old, you're going to find characters that are going to break the mold. You know, we we all live in this society thinking if you're a man, you're a woman, if you're old, you're young, and you can only do this, you can only do that. Uh, imagine a 90-year-old who can move like a 12-year-old. Imagine a 12-year-old who has the wisdom of a 90-year-old. Imagine whatever age you are, that, that it's not about age. It's about who you are as a human being. And this story explores extraordinary human beings. And I think what was behind me developing this whole story was I discovered that what those people who move this society forward are these visionaries who are born with a new idea, a new way of seeing, a new way of thinking, and usually they're cast out of their society, out of their home. They're misunderstood by their family. Many of them have had to walk a dark path. They've become destitute. They've uh, they got raped and pillaged as children. They, they went through horrors. And yet, they're highly gifted. And if they survive long enough through the horrors, many of them are the ones who bring the new technologies, uh, the new innovations into the society that has allowed us to, to prosper. But if you read the life stories of most of those visionaries, they're horror stories. So this is this story follows all those visionaries who were born different and were misunderstood and who misunderstand themselves. We're all on a path of discovery, and yet many of them have had to walk a pretty horrific path, and many of them don't survive. But the ones that do make a difference in the world. And in this case, you know, it's a process of, uh, of surviving long enough uh, for these Mazari, um to basically begin to, if you want to call it, help society to resurrect uh, uh, their highest destiny for mankind in a sense to get past that, that wall where we always, if you read in history, most civilizations, the Egyptians, the Mayans, uh, doesn't matter who they are, they reach a certain pinnacle of success, and then for some reason the civilizations crumble. It seems that every, you know, England used to be the king of the world, and then they almost lost all of it, you know, and now America is like the big, you know, king of the world. But, you know, how long will we be at the top? It seems like every civilization, and then we as a whole civilization, who knows how long our destiny is for? Um, the point is it explores the fact that why does human beings keep somehow getting to a certain level of evolution, of achievement, and then we self-destruct? Well, in a sense, the Killian and these Mazari that he meets along the way are all, in a sense, asked that same question. They're all on that same journey. And through this journey, they will uncover the reasons why. And they'll also uncover the reasons of what we lost as a human being, what has been forgotten, ancient knowledge, ancient awareness, and ancient abilities that the ancient root race uh, once upon a time had. The Masurai once upon a time had these abilities, and they moved beyond more self-destruction, and they moved beyond our, if you want to call it our physical, three-dimensional world. 
uh, there's remnants of them. There's ancient, you know, signposts here and there, but nobody knows where they went to. Well, these Mazarai, Kellyans, they will begin to trace that path and begin to unveil the ancient mysteries and the ancient wisdom and the ancient information that got lost in the and hopefully they will find it in time in order to, in a sense, help society pull back from the brink of annihilation and self-destruction and somehow find a way to get back on the path to a greater destiny than the one we're on. And I think that's a metaphor for life today. That's why I think it's so, so valuable, this story, because it's the journey we're all on. We're all trying to find a way out of this quagmire, and we're all afraid that we may one day blow ourselves all up, and... Uh, you know, I mean, how are we going to get past this place? Because if we don't, we won't, we won't move into space. We won't get to the next level. And I think these questions are being asked by a lot of people today, especially with all the abilities we have to blow ourselves to kingdom come right now and parts of the world that are pretty willing to go there. <laughs> Rich then asks Mr. Hatch his feelings on the, at the time, new incarnation of Battlestar Galactica. Obviously, his opinion has changed a little since then. About four or five years ago, uh, we had I basically went to a com- convention at uh, at um, in Pasadena. It was a Creation Con Star Trek convention, and I had not been to a convention in about 20 years, and I was very, very shocked to realize that there was a tremendous base of Battlestar fans there. And uh, when they introduced me, Everybody is cheering for Battlestar, and I was blown away. I had no idea there was that many fans out there. I had tried to explore the rights about Battlestar several years earlier, thinking they should bring back the show now that technology was at a place where the show could actually be done uh, for a reasonable amount of money, but nobody seemed to know much about it over at Universal. And But after this kind of experience at the uh, Creation Con, I thought, God, there's a huge fan base here. Something needs to be done. I went back to Universal tried to set up a series of meetings and uh, basically couldn't get very far, but I did get connected to people that wanted to do comic books and do some novels, and they had heard about my interest and my participation in writing some stories for Battlestar, and basically asked me if I would write Battlestar comics, and then that evolved into writing books, and then it evolved in me basically beginning to travel the world and realize that there were such a huge fan base all over the world that it inspired me to take an even a couple more steps. And that began the process of pitching the Universal, going to investors, going to companies, raising awareness, raising funds, raising um, everything that I could in order to bring back this show. And eventually, we developed a trailer, which basically uh, got put together from, with the love of many fans who supported us with costumes, with weapons, with props, and then basically fans who grew into industry professionals who came on board with equipment and locations and eventually a little presentation we were putting together grew into this trailer called the Second Coming Trailer with the help of many fans all over the country who drove in in to be extras uh, and the help of many, many people. Uh, We put together this trailer which was received with standing ovations at Dragon Con, Comic Con, and all over the world and it further... uh, made me aware of the fact that this was a show that had such a huge fan base that I couldn't believe Universal was not bringing it back. And so after, again, more multiple meetings in Universal, I got to the point where basically Universal kept saying, there's not enough fans, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, 
but finally about three years after all our efforts, uh, Tom DeSanto, who had been trying also to basically get Universal to do something, got a big hit with X-Men, which he produced with Brian Singer directing. And after the success of X-Men, of course, Universal was now very receptive to Tom DeSanto and Brian Singer, who proceeded to tell them they wanted to do Battlestar as a series. And of course, Universal still couldn't get it, but they were very excited to have Brian Singer and Tom Santo on board, so they decided to go forward with the Battlestar series, and then uh, their series got taken apart when Brian had to leave to do X-Men 2. Uh, Fox dropped the network deal, and basically Tom pitched the Sci-Fi Channel, and the Sci-Fi Channel was interested, but decided to go around Tom's back and hire Ron Moore and David Icke and do their own reimagined version, which went against just about every fan poll, went against every study, went against Glenn Larson, Tom DeSanto, everybody which wanted to continue the original show, they decided to reimagine it from the beginning, changing main characters into women. Instead of adding wonderful women characters, they decided to change two of the most popular characters into women, which none of the fans understood. And I guess Ron Moore was so busy trying to reinvent sci-fi that he basically uh, took what every fan loved about Battlestar Galactica and turned it into something totally different. Now, it may be a, a wonderful show by itself. Um, I think Ron Moore is a talented, gifted writer, producer, but the trouble is when you take a classic and change it too much, you lose your fan. And in this case, they basically stated that they weren't interested in the original fans or interested only in uh, a new generation of people. And basically, we told them that, that Battlestar is always about family. There's three generations of family that are now watching and are fans of it. That means 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds are all fans of the original Battlestar Galactica. So we were confused about what new fans they were talking about, that they were going after. But but even if there were a few new fans out there that, that they could get interested in their new show concept. The fact is, unless they had the support of the main fan base, it seemed to me that they weren't going to survive or stay on long enough to find these new fans. So it still didn't make business sense for me to see the fact that they were changing everything so radically that they were basically slapping the fans in the face and saying, you don't count. And, and so I think at this point in time, um, Edward almost said it best. Edward almost is playing a comedy. He said, you know, if you love the original series, do not watch this show. You'll hate it. And I think I applaud him for his honesty. Uh, I wish the Sci-Fi Channel could be as honest as he was. They basically said the fans don't count, and then basically at the press conference were saying, oh, we were very careful to make this show so that the original fans would love it as well as, as the new fans that we're going after. And I think you can't sit there and say we're going to go after a new fan group between 12 and 24, the old fans don't count, and then all of a sudden change your mind and say, oh, we made this, you know, after fan focus studies with the fans to find out what they wanted, we, we listened to them, and then we put this show together with great care so that we would make them happy as well as the new fans. And I thought, what a, you know, if you're going to, if you want to do a new show, do it. If you want to slap the fans in the face, that, if that's what you want to do, then do it. And if you wanna, if you wanna redefine sci-fi, do it. But then don't lie. You know, take responsibility for what you wanted to do and stand or fall by it. 
You know, in my case, I think they should have called it a different show title or a spin-off in the Battlestar universe. I think the fans would have been far more open and receptive. I mean, no matter how good it is, when something is so different, it takes fans a long time to fall in love and find a new show. I said, uh, the key is you, you need the fan support of the original fans to stay on long enough. Uh, apparently, that doesn't seem to matter to them. They didn't want to extend a, a, a bridge. They didn't want to build a bridge for the fans. They didn't seem to, to care about what the fans wanted, none of the polls they listened to. So for me, if they find a way to succeed, I take my hat off them. If they find a way to ultimately reach out to the fans, I would applaud that. But I honestly, for the life of me, do not understand the business decision behind the choices they made and, and reimagining the original Battlestar Galactica show and changing it so drastically. For the life of me, it hurts. It's painful to see a great story that you love changed so dramatically. But again, like I say, um, uh, if they succeed, I take my head off to them. But in my heart, in my mind, it still will be the Galactica that we all fell in love with. And I truly think there's a way to bring back that show. Update it, evolve certain technologies, add some new characters, but to bring back the heart, the core of the original actors, characters, add a new generation of the children born in space, update the Cylons, and, and you'll have a show for all time. And, and yet it will honor both the, the fans of all three generations, plus whatever new people out there that are not aware of Galactica that you would also get. But you would have such a huge fan base supporting you that I think you would be able to stay on the air long enough to build those new fans. But that's not the option they took. For me, they took the hard road uh, for whatever reasons and choices. Um, and I wish them all the best, but uh, it's really hard. It's painful to talk about it, knowing knowing that, that they've made these decisions. I know Glenn Larson is upset. Tom DeSanto, who produced X-Men, uh, is upset. He loves this show. He would do anything to bring back this show and continue the original series. So hopefully he'll get his next chance, and uh, you know, hopefully the Battlestar will see the light of day once again, no matter what happens with this show. And I know that they're they're thinking about ways to bring it back either as a TV series after this this reimagining or as a theatrical series. So I think Galactica will go on and eventually find its way, maybe back on course when the uh, the right people, people who actually love this show, understand this show, and and, and maybe once upon a time were a fan themselves and remember what it was like to to fall in love with incredible characters and incredible story and and basically. Uh, honor that agenda because that's that's really the people who pay their bills. You know, if you don't if you don't reach out to the community that basically you're asking to buy your product, you're not gonna succeed ultimately. I'd just like to say thank you Richard. I really thank appreciate you. the interview. Thank you. Roto, less structure, less restrictions, more comedy, more absurdity, more often. Requiem off the outcast.com. <laughs>